Amen. Thank you, Casey and worship team for leading us so faithfully this morning. And by worship team, I'm meaning those up here as well as those in the back. Thank you all for serving week in and week out to lead us to worship the Lord in song and in scripture reading and prayer and giving. We're, we're grateful for you and thankful for what you do. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and, if you will, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, continuing in this chapter today. As I studied this week, I was excited to come to our text because I'm just picking up where we left off last week. I'm excited to come to our text because it's probably the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. If you ask non-Christians who do not know the Lord what John 3.16 is, many of them could probably tell you what that verse is. So I was excited to come to this passage on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I was scared to death to come to this passage because we're all so familiar with John 3.16. So what do I say? about John 3.16 that you've not heard, that we've not heard, that we've not read. Well, the only thing I can think of is I just need to say what the text says. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at that and we're going to spend probably a a, a good portion of the time just thinking through John 3.16 and then we're going to flesh out verses 17 through 21 as well. So let's read this passage together and then we'll dive in to text thinking about this wonderful, wonderful passage. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle writes these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Father, As I stand before your people and stand under your word, I feel the weight of this passage. That you would love us. God, help us to grasp your amazing love. We thank you for this passage. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding and apply this text to our hearts and our lives, and we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're all familiar with the beloved children's hymn. Jesus loves me, this I know, 
For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We all know that song. That song probably has a special place in our hearts. For me, that song takes on quite uh, an extra special oomph. You see, when Kathy and I brought our daughter home from Ethiopia, the very first night that we were with her in Ethiopia in the hotel, she was upset. And so Kathy began singing to her as a two-year-old in that hotel bed while it was dark, trying to calm her. In her tears, Kathy began to sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you know what? The tears stopped, she calmed down, and she fell asleep. That was over almost six years ago now. Every single night when I tuck her into bed, she will look at me. If by chance I'm on the verge of forgetting, she will look at me and say, Dad, sing, Jesus Loves Me. Every night we sing that song together. Today, my prayer as we come to this text is this. I, I pray that we would be re amazed by the love of God for us. So as we continue in John chapter 3, as we discuss the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about this great love of God for the world, I, I want you to be re-amazed. Just pause with me for a moment. Think about it for just a second. God so loves You see, what's so amazing about God's love is not that he loves a world that is so big, but that he loves a world that is so bad. You see, our text tells us that we are all under judgment according to chapter 3 verse 18. Our text says that Jesus, as the light, has come into the world, but the world loved darkness because the world's deeds are evil. In fact, we're told that John, who refers to Jesus in his gospel as both the word and the light, he says that Jesus created the world, that he came into the world, but the world wanted nothing to do with Christ. So, that is amazing grace. You see, the amazing grace of God is that he would love any of us. The amazing grace of God is not simply that God saves us from our sins if we believe in his son. But that God saves us ultimately from himself. That's what's so amazing about the love of God. In other words, by God giving his son to save a world that will believe in him, he is saving us from himself. Because sin is so serious of an offense against God. 
He cannot overlook it. He cannot ignore it. He can't minimize it. He must judge it. So instead of judging the entire world now, what God the Father does is he judges sin in Christ. He sent his Son to bear that judgment for all who will believe. New Testament scholars are divided about whether or not John chapter 3 verses 16 through 21 is Jesus still speaking to Nicodemus or is it John simply giving commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? I don't know. Either way, what we have is a profound truth that changes everything. Whether Jesus is at this point still talking to Nicodemus or whether John is simply saying, let me unpack this conversation that Jesus has just had with Nicodemus so that the reader understands it. Either way, what John is saying is, this changes everything. The sin that has ravaged the world since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. The disease, the suffering, the pain, the hate, the death. Ultimately God's judgment all because of sin. All of that is remedied because God so loved the world. John has already told us about the incarnation. About the word becoming flesh in John chapter 1. Now. Don't miss this. All of this is tied together. Now in John chapter 3. John is telling us why the word became flesh. Because God so loved the world. That's why he became flesh. So the thrust of this passage is on the action of God's love. In other words, God so loves the world that he takes action. An action that costs God the Father what is most dear to himself, namely his Son. This is the costly love of God for the world. So the point that John is making is this. God so loves us. That he sent his son to save us. God so loves us that he sent his son to save us. So let's zero in now on verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everlasting life. God saves us because of his love. Is what John is telling us in verse 16. God saves us because of his love. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Everything. And it's not a secondhand emotion. Y'all will get that later. Love, as John understands it, is unselfish. It's unconditional. It's an unconditional unselfish affection or care for another. John says that Jesus loves the world. 
This is shocking. Shocking to Nicodemus if this is Jesus and Nicodemus having a conversation. Or it's shocking to this first century audience that would have read what John has penned. Why? Why is this shocking? Because God loves the Jews. He does not love the world. At least, that's what they believed. Yet, the very world in John chapter 1 that Jesus made and which rebelled against him wanted nothing to do with him. That's the world that God, we are told, loves. John is very clear throughout this gospel. He starts it in chapter 1 saying that the word became flesh and this word created the world, came into the world and the world that he created wanted nothing to do with him, rebelled against him and yet God loves the world. That's shocking. God loves us red, yellow, black, brown, white. It makes no difference. We are precious in his sight. You see, God saves by giving his only begotten son. This is God's initiative. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world. God did this. God initiated this. Love isn't passive and neither is God. And it's not that God loves us in response to our love for him. This is not what John is saying. He's not responding to our love and thus loving us in return. That's easy to do. Anybody can love others who love them. What's so amazing is that God is loving those who do not love him. In fact, John will be crystal clear years later when he writes in 1 John 4.10. It's not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the the wrath-bearing son on our behalf. In other words, satisfying the anger of God the Father against us because of our sin. God loved us first. Out of his love, God satisfied his own demand and his own anger against sin through the death of his son. That's what is so mind-boggling and so amazing about John 3.16. God loves when we are unlovable. I'm not always lovable, as shocking as that seems to you. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. I'm not, but here's the deal. Neither are you. Neither are you. And yet, in our unlovableness, God loves us. Neither did God decide at the cross to love us. As if the cross somehow changed God's view of us. My friend, what John wants us to understand is that the love of God for us began in eternity. Before he created us, he loved us. And because he loves us, he sent his only begotten son in order to save us. He loves us by giving his only begotten son. 
that's important language. And sometimes we just kind of skim over it. Some translations translate it one and only. But what's the point of this one word, begotten? What is it saying? What is John telling us? Or what is Jesus saying about this great love of God that would send his only begotten son? Well, it was in the summer of 325 A.D. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Nearly 1,700 or so years ago. It was in that summer of 325 A.D. In a little town in modern day Turkey. Where 300 church leaders gathered together at the request of an emperor by the name of Constantine. Let's just call him Consti. To solve a divisive issue in the church... Over the nature of Jesus. In other words, there was a teaching by a guy named Arius that was running around, stirring up the vision, saying that Jesus wasn't divine. He wasn't God. In fact, Jesus was some kind of created creature. So, this group of 300 church leaders gathered together to discuss and debate the nature of who Jesus is. They eventually came to a conclusion that Jesus is divine. That he was not created. And they said that those following the teaching of that guy named Arius are wrong. It's a heresy, a false teaching. So they wrote a document called the Nicene Creed. A bit of that document says this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Only, here it is, only begotten of the Father... God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. If you were a rapper, you could just throw this down right now. God of God, true God, begotten one. Oh, not made. Oh, whoa. You know, you could really do that. I won't do that right now. Of, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. And somebody just wants to drop a beatbox right now. I can, I can feel it. So what does it mean? Begotten Son of God. What is, what is John saying here? And what did these early church leaders conclude? Were they right? Well, John has already told us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is not created. But he is divine. He's equal with God as God. The word begotten is understood from the context of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Where we're told that Jesus was in the beginning with God. The word was with God and the word was God. In other words, John starts off his gospel from the very beginning, right out the gate. Telling the reader of two persons of the Godhead. The Father and the Son. Brothers and sisters, we are a Trinitarian people. We believe in a monotheism. You say, what on earth does that mean? It means we believe in one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And John is outlining that for us at the very beginning of his gospel. God the Father, God the Son. We have God the Father and God the Son, two persons of the Godhead. It's hard for our minds to comprehend this. Let's just be honest. It's hard for us to wrap around. What does Jesus mean by only begotten Son of God? 
But John is telling us in chapter 1 how to understand what begotten son means in chapter 3. In fact, he uses the same term in chapter 1 as well. There was never a time, here it is, let's boil it down. Begotten, begotten. Here's what begotten means. There was never a time when the son did not exist. The son is not the father and the father is not the son. As John Piper notes, you can't reverse the two in the New Testament. We're not substituting one for the other here. The son has eternally existed. Now, try to wrap your mind around this. I can't. But the son has eternally existed as the son. And he is God, but he is not the father. You following me? Theologians refer to this understanding as the eternal generation of the Son. Why do I say that? Because it's important. Because some people out there are going to try to tell you that Jesus isn't God. That he was created. That he's not the second person of the Trinity. My friend, that's a lie. What does it mean? Eternal generation. It means this. Coming forth. Coming from. So Jesus comes from the Father. Begotten from the Father. To be clear... This is referring to Jesus' origin in eternity as theologian Matthew Barrett describes it. In other words, apart from creation, Jesus has always been, but he proceeds. He comes from the Father. He's the eternal begotten Son of God. He did not come into being. Hear me, he has always been. One in essence with the Father, but two persons. God the Father, God the Son. John, in using this term, begotten, wants us to see that Jesus is eternally the Son. He was not created. He was not made. He is fully God and is the second person of the Godhead. That's why this is so crucial. Because, my friend, when God said, I love you and I'm going to come and save you, he didn't send somebody else. He came himself. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John wants us to understand what it means for the son to be the only begotten son of God. So, as we continue through John 3.16, what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God saves us as we believe. This message, believe or faith in Jesus is how his being given for us is applied to us. My friend, God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. And as Charles Spurgeon once described it, these friends are not at odds. God is sovereign and you and I must believe. We must Come to faith in Christ. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He talks about faith in three ways. There's the content. In other words, you know what the, the content of saving faith is. Who God is. Who Jesus is. What he did. It's the content. It's the story, if you will, about who Jesus is. We, we need to know the content. But the second aspect of faith is a mental assent. Not only do I need to know the content about who Jesus is, I need to affirm that it's true. 
It's one thing for me to know the story. It's another thing for me to say, yes, I believe that actually happened. It is true. But yet there's a third element of saving faith. It can't just be the content. It can't just be a mental ascent. The third element of saving faith is a wholehearted trust. In other words, it's the man in Scripture saying, my Lord and my God. It's, it's the tax collector hitting his chest and looking up to heaven and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's believing that who Jesus says he is, he really is. And what Jesus said he did, he actually did. But he not only did that for somebody out there, he did that, he did that for me. And he did that for you, if you will believe. It's a wholehearted trust. What this means is this, friend. Don't miss this. This means that you can know about Jesus and what he did and even believe it to be true and still perish without him. You must believe, that is, you must trust that who he is and what he did was for you in your place. That's wholehearted trust. Why does he do this? So that you will not perish. You'll not perish. To perish means that those who do not believe in Jesus will be destroyed. So believing in Jesus results in not perishing. Now, let me be clear. Perish is not simply being destroyed as if you no longer exist. That's not what Jesus is saying. Nor is that what scripture teaches. Rather, the verses that follow explain what it means to actually perish. To be under the judgment or the wrath of God, my friend, is to perish. Just as life is not simply in this world, but eternal. Notice the end of the verse. Shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So just as life is not just in this world, but it's eternal, so too to perish is not simply ceasing to exist, but it's to perish eternally. Just as life is eternal, perish is also eternal. Perishing is remaining under the wrath of God. Don't miss this. As one theologian used to say, it's an awful thing. To fall into the hands of an angry God. But on the flip side, he also says you will have eternal life. The love of God gives eternal life to those who believe. In other words, the wrath of God against you because of your unbelief in Jesus is forgiven. Oh, but there is life in Jesus for those who believe. That's the promise that Jesus is making. That's what John is telling us. If you will but believe, there is life forever. Your sins will be forgiven and you will forever be with God. So we see that God saves us. But here's what we notice in verse 17. God sent Jesus to save, not to judge for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. 
John clarifies the mission of Jesus given by the Father. He tells us that what Jesus did not come to do, at least in his first coming, this incarnation of Jesus where he walked the earth and lived and taught and died and was raised. In this coming, he did not come to judge. You see, the opposite of saving is condemning. Jesus will certainly judge. John says that in chapter 9 and 12. Other places speak of Jesus judging in the future. But the point here is this. that Not that Jesus won't ever judge. For the world is already under judgment. But that he came to save the world from judgment. That's why he came. He came, my friend, to save. And as this passage calls us today, will you simply believe? A time is coming when judgment will occur. Though it already is here for those who do not believe, as the text says. The good news is that Jesus came to save you if you will but believe. Here's what this means right now. As you sit here living and breathing, you have opportunity to believe and not be judged by God. As long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as you live, you have the opportunity to believe this message. In other words, it's not too late. But hear me. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. Nor do you have the promise of the next moment. No matter your age. Believe now. And be saved. To be clear, based on what we have said about this text so far. To be saved is not simply from your sins. Though it is that. To be saved is to be, is to be saved or delivered. Hear me. From God. From his judgment. You see, it is his wrath his punishment that Jesus came to save us from. Will you believe? Third, we see this. God saves us to free us. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To believe in God's Son is to be free of judgment. Believe and be free says John in our text. It's God as judge in the courtroom of heaven, bringing down his holy gavel on the desk, declaring that you are free and forgiven. Forgiven. Free. My friend, this verdict cannot be overturned. It cannot be appealed. It can't go to another court for review. So rejoice. If you are in Christ, you, my friend, are free. Your sins have been forgiven. But the text also tells us that we are judged already in our unbelief. Those who do not believe have been judged already, he says in verse 18. In other words, they continue in unbelief and therefore remain under God's judgment. Similarly, in God's courtroom of heaven, bringing down his holy gavel, 
on the desk, declaring those who have not believed to be guilty and deserving of his judgment. Friend, this verdict also cannot be overturned. Hear me. Here's the catch. Unless you believe now. For if you die in unbelief, you will remain forever under the judgment of a holy God. There is no second chance after death. Your only hope is to believe this good news now. So why are people under God's judgment? Why? Look at verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why is it that people are under God's judgment? John says in verse 19, because the light has come. Like John's words in chapter 1, the world Jesus created is one in which they have rebelled against their creator. What does light do? It repels darkness. It exposes darkness. The light has come, John says, but we love darkness. Friends, what John is telling us is this. No one is neutral. No one. We're not born neutral and we don't live neutral we don't just sin the Bible teaches that we are sinners in other words our nature is sinful thus we sin we love it we coddle it we feed it we encourage it we multiply it we love sin we're like pigs taking a bath in the summer Soaping it up in the tub. And as soon as we get out of the tub, what do we do? We run to the mud. Hoink, 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 hoink. That's what we love. Because of our sin, judgment has come, John says, into the world. Why do we love darkness? And why do we hate the light? Here it is, verse 20. Because we love our sin. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. A number of years ago when I was pastoring a church not too terribly far from here, I had a conversation with a neighbor. And in that conversation, I began to share the gospel with him as he asked me some questions about the Bible and I began to share the good news of Jesus with him. And after I finished sharing who Jesus was and what Jesus did on the cross and that he must repent of his sins and believe in the good news of Jesus, I said, does that make sense to you? And he said, yeah. I said, do you believe that that actually happened? And he said, I do. And I thought, man, we're cooking now. He, he heard the, the truth about Jesus. In fact, he was familiar with it already. But he heard the truth about Jesus and he even believed that it was true. And then I said, are you willing to turn from your sin and believe in Christ for your Lord and Savior? And I'll never forget what he said to me. 
without batting an eye, he said, no. I said, why? Here's what he said. Because I, I love my sin too much. And I said, then my friend, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But hear me, that response, that response is not only a response from him. It's a response from each of us. Unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes. That's why John wants us to understand that the reason we love darkness and the reason we hate the light is because we love our sin. Brothers and sisters, fundamentally, our greatest problem is us, not somebody else. And fundamentally, the greatest and only solution is God, not someone else. This means that all of us hate the light. This means that all of us want nothing to do with coming to the light. It's our very nature to love sin. It's our very nature to hate the light. We're not neutral. We know that if we come to the light, our deeds will be exposed. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. The light of the gospel of Christ will shine on the darkness of your heart and you don't want that. And neither do I. Our sin will be shown for what it really is if we come to the light. And what is that, Doug? It's rebellion against the high king of heaven. It's anarchy. It's treason. And we're guilty. Every every last one of us. That's why the world flaunts its sin. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but I'm troubled When I turn on the TV or when I hear music today or when I see scenes today and sights today, I'm seeing that our world is not increasingly growing in righteousness. Our world is increasingly growing in unrighteousness. Why? Because the world loves darkness. And so do I and so do you outside of Christ. You see, we don't want to come to the light because the light will expose our true identity. Rebels. But praise be to God, we have verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why does anyone come to the light is being answered in verse 21. Why does anyone believe in the only begotten Son of God? Those who come to the light, 
those who believe in the only begotten Son of God who was sent into the world come to the light because of a supernatural work of God. This is where all of this chapter ties together. Don't miss this. We who are in Christ are in Him because God did this. Not ourselves. You can't take credit for it. You can't strut about it. You can't brag about it. God did this if you're in Christ. Just as you can't cause yourself to be born... You can't cause yourself to be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, say what? How can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? Some say, well, maybe Nicodemus is being sarcastic. I don't think that's what's going on. I think when Nicodemus says that, he's like genuinely perplexed. What do you mean born again? Just as I didn't cause my birth... How do you expect me to cause my second birth? Ah, Nicodemus, that's the key. you got to be born from above. That's why John chapter 3 verse 21 says, Anything that gives testimony, as we read in Colossians 1, that we're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, anything in our lives that give testimony or fruit of that is this. It is wrought by God. Brothers and sisters, you loved darkness. You wanted darkness. You coddled it. You cuddled it. You petted it. You fed it. And you multiplied it. Why? Because that's your nature. That's my nature. But John is saying, my friend, if you are in God, you are in God because God brought you to God. My friend, God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would you come to him now if you've never come to him at all? Would you trust him now? Would you cry out, Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. And I confess you are my king. Would you do that now in your own heart? Crying out to him. If you have, my friend, don't miss this. Worship him. I mean, sing like you've never sung. Live like you've never lived. Why? Because if you are in Christ, the only reason you are in Christ is a supernatural work of God. My friend, you must be born again. You must be born from above. How does that happen? God is how that happens. God does this. So my friend, if you are in Christ, you have much to praise him for. If you're not in Christ, hear me. Kids, students, adults, hear me. Turn to him now. Because right now it's not too late. And you can come to him freely. And you can come to him because he says come. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come now and he will save you. Come now and he will transform you. If you have come, my friend, rejoice. Because God did this in you. For his glory and for his good. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this beautiful passage. I feel in so many ways I did not even do justice to this grand and glorious text. But I pray, God, that by your grace we would be a people that are re-amazed by your amazing grace. That we would be re-amazed by your love for us. That you would love the unlovable. That you would love the rebel. That you would love the God-hater and the man-pleaser. God, even right now, there are some in this room that have never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Oh, they might know the story. They might be familiar with what happened. And they might even believe it to be true. But there are some here that have never in wholehearted trust cried out to Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to be Lord and Savior of their life. And I pray that even right now you would open their heart, open their eyes, give them faith to believe. Save them, Jesus. There are many others in this room that have received this supernatural work of God in their hearts. And this is all of you for your glory. You did this. God, help us by your grace to be grateful. Help us by your grace to worship you for it. Help us by your grace to spread it. So that others too might believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you.